The manifestations described in this story commenced one year ago. No person has yet been able to ascertain their cause. Scientific men from all parts of Canada and the United States have investigated them in vain. Some people think that electricity is the principal agent, others mesmerism, whilst others again are sure they are produced by the devil. Of the three supposed causes, the latter is certainly the most plausible theory, for some of the manifestations are remarkably devilish in their appearance and effect. The opening lines of an account that describes an event that perplexed, excited and angered the citizens of the small Canadian town of Amherst in the 19th century. It probably comes as no surprise that the man who wrote them had a professional flair for dramatics, though the events were hardly short of drama to begin with. A young girl, haunted by demons, whose story bookended a series of supernormal events with an assault and a conviction for arson. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6, Episode 10. I'm your host as always, Ben. It's good to be here. This week, we've got a story that is actually really famous, except from I, in all of my ignorance, had had never actually heard of it until very recently. Um, I don't know how it escaped me, actually, because looking it up, it seems to be, yeah, quite a a big one. So I thought we'd uh, dip our toes into it this week because it was an interesting story, despite the fact that it's quite a big one. So yeah, let's get into that. Before we start, I just want to just give a quick shout out, like one last shout out now um, for the Ask Me Anything. If you've got any questions for the Ask Me Anything that I'm going to do as a little kind of like bonus for next month, um, which is part of the five year anniversary for Dark Histories, um, get your questions into me. Uh, you can do so either through email, contact at darkhistories.com. Or uh, if you just jump on any of the social medias, uh, Instagram, probably the best bet, uh, and just DM me on there and I'll, I'll collect them and, and answer them at a later date. Um, but yeah, you basically, um, this is going to be the last episode to shout that out. So yeah, if you've got a question, if you've got a burning question you want to ask about me or the podcast or anything, literally ask me anything, uh, go ahead and do so. Uh, so let's get started anyway. This is Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery. Established in the mid-18th century, the small town of Amherst sits on the northern border of Nova Scotia, just south of New Brunswick, Canada. With freezing winters and mild summers, its steely grey sky is often shrouded in dense cloud cover that sits high over the flat marshlands and dense woodlands of birch and fir. Originally settled by the Acadians a century earlier, who christened the outpost Fort Lawrence, and the indigenous Mi'kmaq, who lived on the land for centuries before that, They were both unceremoniously expelled by the British during the Seven Years' War that saw the British pitted against the French in colonial outposts right across the globe. Following the hostilities, the region was resettled in 1764 by a group made up of immigrants from England and British loyalists who had fled America during the Revolution, and the fledgling village was renamed Amherst in the process. In its early years, industry was focused on the local grist mill and tannery, which eventually formed the core of the town as houses were built to surround it, shifting the settlement at the same time. In 1840, a railway line that would carve across Canada was imagined, and when it arrived in Amherst in the 1870s, it joined what was already an area with a strong industrial pull to the nation's network, streamlining the local fishing, boat building and coal mining industries, which signalled a period of quick growth for the town. Serving its population of about 3,000, Amherst boasted four stone churches, an academy, a music hall, 
as well as an iron foundry, a woodworking plant and a boot and shoe factory which operated as the town's main employers. Princess Street, on the northwest boundary of the town, was a small, unassuming side street lined with two-storey cottages. Short, knee-high fences surrounding the front gardens stopped chickens running around wild in the street. A slow, erratic stream of horses and carts rattled by on the loose stone in the street that ran past the small front gates, along with the foot traffic as people made their way to the nearby factories and workshops. The Teed House, at number 6 Princess Street, was not out of place at all with its surroundings. Two stories high, with an angled roof and painted at a washed-out brown-yellow, it stood in a row of identical buildings, quiet and nondescript. Chickens waddled around in the garden that wound around to the back of the small cottage, opening up to a barn that housed an ageing dairy cow. The house was a good representation of the family that inhabited it, who quietly went about their lives with very few peaks and troughs. That was until the winter of 1878, when one of the family's daughters would launch the small house and the town of Amherst itself into the national spotlight and achieve a level of fame that would see her immortalised within the esoteric fringe as one of Canada's most well-known stories of the paranormal. With an extended multi-generational family all living under one fairly modest roof, the Teed household was relatively busy with the metronomic hum of everyday life. At the head of the household was husband and wife Daniel and Olive Teed. Daniel Teed was a relatively well thought of man within Amherst. He worked his days as a foreman at the Amherst Boot and Shoe Factory whilst mucking in with the community during his days off. A keen churchgoer and member of the local temperance society who, often linked with the church, were part of a growing movement that had formed in the early 19th century in order to promote the moral argument for teetotalism and abstinence from alcohol in efforts to create what they often referred to as better citizenship. His wife Olive, 13 years his junior at just 22 years old, was a housewife with her hands full, looking after their two young sons, Willie and George, who were five years and 17 months old respectively. She also had to care for the cow and the chickens, as well as all of the household chores and cooking. Fortunately, she did have help, as she lived together with two of her sisters, Jenny, or better known as Jane, and Esther Cox, the Cox sisters had grown up in Nova Scotia with their grandmother after their mother had passed away just weeks after Esther's birth in 1860. Their father, not wanting to deal with single parenthood, dumped the children shortly after and left for the state of Maine in order to remarry. And when their grandmother passed away, the Cox sisters naturally continued to live together. Although Jane worked at Dunlap's store every day, Esther was often on hand to help Olive with the children or with the household chores. Also living in the house was William Cox, Olive's brother, who worked under Daniel at the boot and shoe factory, and John Teed, Daniel's brother, a farmer who lived at home during the periods he was without any farmland to tend. All in all, the various comings and goings kept the hinges of the front gate free from rust, and the occupants on their feet. In a small town in the 19th century, being attractive could take you a long way as far as a local reputation went, and Jane, who was considered one of the most beautiful young women of Amherst, gave a healthy boost to the Teed's household. Esther, on the other hand, was less so. Described as low in stature and rather inclined to be stout, she had curly brown shoulder-length hair, blue-grey eyes and a somewhat standoffish demeanour with a strong, independent streak. Nevertheless, despite Jane seemingly having her pick of suitors, she remained single, whilst Esther, much to the family's disapproval, was dating a local man named Bob McNeil. 
McNeil also worked under Daniel at the Amherst Boot and Shoe Factory, and whilst he was handsome, and Daniel himself admitted to him being an earnest and good worker, he had a reputation of something of a wild fellow, and Esther's sisters regularly tried to persuade her away from dating him. The evening of Wednesday the 28th of August 1871 was characteristically mild, though the sky threatened with dark grey storm clouds hovering on the horizon. Esther had finished clearing the table after supper and was sitting out front of the small cottage on Princess Street, waiting for the arrival of Bob, who had planned to drop by and pick her up at eight for a trip out in his horse-drawn buggy. It had been a difficult day, since the night before, Esther had jumped awake in the middle of the night from a nightmare where she had seen visions of balls stampeding through the town, blood dripping from their mouths and fire flying from their feet, crashing into their house. The dream had played on her mind all day, leaving her with a headache, She hoped that at least the ride with Bob would clear her head. Esther wasn't waiting too long before Bob arrived and she jumped into the passenger side of the small two-seater and the pair trotted off towards the outskirts of town for a trip around the marshlands. It was as they were riding through a small scrub of woodland that Esther would find out in the most shocking way that her sisters had been more or less right about Bob all along. In a sudden flash of rage, Bob pulled up the car leapt out into the road and pulled a handgun on Esther, who was sitting dumbstruck in the buggy. Rain had started to fall, and the grey sky cast a dark shadow amongst the trees, suffocating Bob's screams at Esther to get out of the buggy. Esther refused, despite Bob waving the handgun around and threatening to shoot her. Fortunately, at the same moment, another buggy came trotting along further up the road, throwing Bob and forcing him to end his attempted assault. Without a word, he jumped back in the car and rode Esther back to her home at breakneck speed, unceremoniously dumping her off at the gate of the cottage before speeding off down the road. Terrified, soaking wet and suffering from shock, Esther stumbled through the low gate and into the house, where she turned up the stairs and took herself off to bed without saying a word to her family. Over the following days, Esther skulked around the house, shirking her chores, instead opting to leave and spend time alone at every opportunity, walking the streets of Amherst aimlessly. The shock of her sweetheart suddenly turning into a violent abuser had hit her hard, and whilst her sisters certainly noticed the sudden change of demeanour with their sister, they figured she'd just had a falling out with Bob during their ride, and secretly they harboured a degree of relief that she had ended her dealings with the young man. Figuring that her sadness would be temporary, none of them broached the subject with her, instead opting to wait for Esther to work it out with herself and come round on her own time. A week later, however, and Esther was still struggling, spending her days confined to her own head, going to bed early and crying herself to sleep night after night. On Wednesday, the September the 4th, exactly a week after the fateful night out with Bob, Esther had gone up to bed early, as was usual. Jane, who slept in the same bed with Esther, came home early after visiting her friend after it had turned into a damp and foggy evening. By 9pm, the house was quiet, with everyone retiring to bed. Jane had slipped into bed alongside Esther, who woke and had a brief chat with her sister, before both girls settled down to sleep. Fifteen minutes after Jane had gotten into bed and shut the oil lamp off, however, she was startled awake by Esther, who had woken suddenly, jumped up in bed and let out an ear-piercing scream. A mouse was under the bedclothes, she yelled to Jane, who was fumbling with the oil lamp, trying to cast some light onto the confusing situation. She had felt nothing, she told Esther, trying to reassure and calm her sister without giving too much of her own fear of mice away at the same time. But Esther was already out of bed, her back against the wall, and wide-eyed, she was staring at the sheets. 
The two girls eventually got the oil lamp lit and ruffled the sheets, and after finding nothing, Jane managed to convince Esther to get back into bed and ignore it. After an uneasy few minutes, the girls both eventually succumbed to the night, sleeping right through to morning without any further interruptions. The following night, Esther woke once more, convinced that she could hear the rustling again, this time coming from underneath the bed. By now realising that this was likely going to continue every night until the situation was more convincingly resolved, Jane begrudgingly lit the oil lamp and the two got up and began fishing around beneath the bed for any signs of this troublesome mouse. In truth though, she too had heard the rustling this time and she thought it was coming from a green cardboard box that had been filled with patchwork cutoffs. Jane pulled the box out from underneath the bed and slid it into the middle of the room. Just as it came to a stop, it leapt up into the air, a foot from the ground, and landed back on its side. Startled, Jane picks up the box and places it back down in the middle of the room and stood back, only to see it repeat the same sharp leap a foot into the air. The two girls looked at each other in silence for a second, before simultaneously bursting out into a chorus of screams. Alerted by the girls' fright, Daniel came stumbling into the room, half-dressed and pulling on his shirt to see what was going on. But when the girls tried to explain to him about a jumping box, he simply laughed them off and told them to get themselves back to bed. The next morning over breakfast, the girls once more tried to convince him that the box really had jumped on its own accord. But the whole family hearing this story over the table only continued to laugh it off, convinced that the girls had likely been dreaming and startled one another with their screams. The day passed as normal and Esther took care of the chores, helped Olive with her dinner and then spent the afternoon walking through town and stopping to do some shopping. After supper that evening, she felt a bit feverish and retired to bed early. At 10pm, Jane also went to bed, finding Esther fast asleep. Shortly after she got into bed, and just as she was nodding off to sleep, she was jerked awake by Esther, who was sitting up in bed, screaming at Jane for help, shouting that she felt like she was dying. Trying to once again calm her sister down, Jane sat up and lit the oil lamp, only to find Esther standing in the middle of the room. There stood Esther in the centre of the room, her short hair almost standing on end, her face as red as blood, and her eyes really looked as if they were about to start from their sockets. Her hands were grasping the back of a chair so tightly that her nails sank into the soft wood. She was truly an object to look on with amazement as she stood there in her white nightgown, trembling with fear. Concerned at the alarming sight of Esther, Jane called out for help. Olive was the first in the room, followed shortly after by Daniel, William and John, who all bundled into their small bedroom to see what the fuss was about. Olive, alarmed at how pale Esther was appearing, sat her on the bed, concerned that she might faint, where they then assisted her back under the bed covers. Concerned for her sister, Jane tried to relax Esther, who was now suffering a burning fever and complaining of feeling like she would burst and seemingly in a great deal of pain, saying that she was swelling up. As Esther lay grinding her teeth, a sudden violent boom sounded throughout the room, so loud that all of the commotion in the room stopped as everyone stared at one another. Olive rushed to check on her sons, concerned that the house had been struck by lightning, but they were fine, and when she returned to the room, she opened the window and checked the weather, only to see a clear, starlit sky overhead. Perplexed, she slid the window closed, and precisely as the sash hit the frame, the boom sounded again three times in quick succession, shaking the whole house. As sudden and shocking as the thunderous booms had been, they had appeared to have taken the panic from Esther, who laid back down in the bed in a state of relaxed calm. 
After checking on her for a time and satisfied that the commotion was over for the night, the family slowly drifted back off to bed until only Jane and Esther remained in the room. Climbing into bed alongside Esther, who was now sleeping soundly, Jane turned out the oil lamp and pulled herself under the covers and lay awake the rest of the night, staring up at the ceiling, turning over the night's strange happenings until dawn broke and it was time for her to get ready for work. Esther woke late the next day and spent the day pottering about town. Her fever having passed, she felt back to her usual self and helped to prepare the evening supper with Olive. Over the table, the family discussed the previous night's strange events, including the loud bangs that had shook the house, though none could fathom a likely answer. Eventually, they concluded that it was probably best if they kept the whole experience to themselves, fearing harsh judgments from the neighbours if any word was to get out that their daughter was experiencing strange fevers and loud disembodied bangs were rocking the house. For a few days, things seemed to quiet down, and just as the teeds were settling down again, things took another peculiar turn. On the night of Tuesday the 10th of September, four days after the previous strange events, Esther once more retired to bed early, feeling feverish. Jane suggested to her sister that she tried her best to relax and to sleep it off, but it was perhaps wishful thinking on her part, as she had been the one staying awake all night before. As they both lay in bed at around 10pm, Jane drifting off to sleep, she was almost half-expectedly, once again, abruptly shook awake. This time, it wasn't Esther directly that was the problem though. As they had both laid in bed, the covers had suddenly ripped off and flew across the room, landing in a heap in the far corner of the room. It was all too much for Jane, who fainted on the spot, whilst Esther screamed, alerting the rest of the family. Olive and Daniel entered the bedroom, holding up an oil lamp, and with a thoroughly confused look, stared at the two girls lying in the bed, and over to the bedclothes lying crumpled on the floor. Olive instinctively grabbed the covers up and tossed them back over the girls. However, no sooner had she done so, they were once again pulled up by an invisible force and tossed back into the corner right in front of everyone's eyes, followed within a moment by Esther's pillow, which pulled up from under her head and flew across the room, hitting John in the side of the head, who instantly stormed out of the room in fright. Meanwhile, Olive had once more picked up the covers and tossed them back over the bed, opting to sit on the edge, hoping to keep the bedclothes anchored down. Esther complained of a headache, and so William went down to the kitchen to fetch the pail of drinking water that stood as a permanent fixture on the kitchen table. As he stepped back into the room, carrying the bucket, the same loud bang from the previous night shook the room once more, and with it, Esther relaxed, just as she had before, and seemed to fall into a comfortable sleep. Bemused, but with little else that they could do now that the two girls were sleeping peacefully, the rest of the family once again returned to their beds. Mercifully, the rest of the night passed by peacefully, but there was no denying for Olive and Daniel that the events happening in Esther and Jane's room were very uncomfortable indeed. The next morning over breakfast, the family agreed that it was perhaps best if they broke their complete silence and called in the local doctor to see if he could be of any help. Daniel left for work a little earlier than normal and stopped into Dr Carrot's office and arranged for him to visit the house that night. The doctor had initially laughed at Daniel, but after seeing his persistence, reassured him that he would stay all night if he had to in order to prove that everything was sure to be easily explainable and likely to be a case of tomfoolery on behalf of Esther and Jane, once seen with a clear perspective. True to his word, he arrived at the Teeds at 10pm that night and took a seat in Esther and Jane's room, the girls having already gotten into bed before his arrival. Once he had settled into the room, he gave Esther a quick medical check-over, taking her pulse and feeling her temperature 
before exclaiming that she seemed to be suffering from nervous excitement and had, in his opinion, likely suffered a recent shock. At the very moment that he was explaining this diagnosis to the anxiously watching Teed family, Esther's pillow, like the night before, flipped out from under her head, span in midair, straightened itself out, and then placed itself back in its normal position. The doctor stared wide-eyed in amusement. Once again, with all eyes on it, the pillow flipped out into the air, but this time John was quick enough to grab hold of it, and with all of his effort he attempted to pull it from the air, try as he might though, it seemed to be gripped by an invisible force that pulled back with equal strength. The doctor's initial shock passed to sheer excitement, and whilst John stood paralysed with a new fear, he merely pronounced the whole thing wonderful. It was merely the beginning of what would be a chaotic night, as the doctor was soon shook out of his seat by the thunderous booming that had by now become so ubiquitous with the unusual happenings. Jumping up from his chair, the doctor began looking around the room, fumbling under the bed, trying to discern where the sound was coming from. He felt, rather strangely, that as he moved around, the sound would follow him, never coming from one particular spot. The bedclothes were tossed across the room like the night before, but this time, as Olive began collecting them up to place them back on the bed, the room was filled with a scratching sound. When they investigated the bed to see what it was, they found that on the wall, by the foot of the bed, writing had been scrawled, which had previously been blank. Large, shaky letters spelled out the sentence, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. The bangs continued that night for about two hours, until things eventually returned to quiet. The doctor had been treated to quite a trial of fire, and when he left the house just past midnight, he promised to return the next morning in order to give Esther some medicine for nerves. The bangs and other strange happenings were a bit out of his wheelhouse, but he insisted that if he could treat Esther's nerves, then it would be likely that everything else would gradually fade away too. True to his word, the following morning he arrived at the house to find Esther and Olive getting on with their daily chores. Esther insisted that she now felt completely fine, but things took a bit of a turn when Esther went down to the basement only to return to the kitchen out of breath, spluttering that someone had been down there in the dark and tossed a piece of wood at her head. The doctor took Esther back down the stairs to show her that no one could possibly be down there, but as they stood in the dark, a handful of potatoes were tossed at the pair of them, leaving them to beat a hasty retreat together back up into the light of the kitchen. The doctor left shortly after, but returned that night to administer a concoction of opioids to Esther, which he hoped would keep her sedated through the night and prevent any further anxiety or fits of nerves, but apparently it had no effect on the banging, which commenced shortly after and continued on until midnight, only this time they were even louder. Whilst they were hammering away throughout the house, the doctor went outside into the street but could see nothing that might have been causing the sounds and when he came back in he said that from outside the bang sounded as if someone was standing on the roof of the house and hammering away at it with a sledgehammer. Perhaps more concerningly for the Teeds was the doctor's admission that he could still hear the bangs even at a distance of about 200 yards from the house. With such a commotion night after night it would only be a matter of time before the neighbours started asking questions. Their fears were realised the very next morning when rumours were quickly spreading around the town of the strange noises coming from the Teed's house. Although the doctor returned to treat Esther every day, matters were only made worse when the banging noises began happening during the day, stopping passers-by in their tracks who would stand and stare at the house, puzzled by the enormous bangs emanating from the small cottage. And things continued to pass in much this way for several more weeks. Questions were being asked openly about the Teed's 
but still the family had managed to remain fairly tight-lipped. The doctor continued his visits, but nothing seemed to have much effect. If anything, Esther seemed to be getting worse, and she had appeared to have spasms on more than one occasion. Eventually, after three weeks, the doctor was standing over her, watching her spasm as before, when she began talking. In a slow, steady tone, she told the doctor all about the night with Bob, about the gun and the threats, and of how she had been saved by the grace of the stranger's cart trotting into view that had spooked Bob into returning her home unharmed. Until now, she had kept the details of that night to herself, and now it appeared, whilst in a trance, she spilled out her painful secret. Once the spasms passed, the doctor spoke to her again of what she had said, and though she claimed to have had no recollection of telling him them, she admitted it had all been true. For the doctor, it explained a lot about Esther's nervous state, but for Olive, it explained far more. In quite a large leap, she began blaming Bob for all of the current problems in the house, including the loud bangs. Convinced that it was Bob out to cause further harm to Esther, she aired her suspicions out loud, only to be instantly stunned by three loud bangs. Curious, she suggested to the doctor that the bangs may have had some kind of intelligence behind them, and the doctor, seemingly agreeing, took to asking out loud, can you, whatever you are, hear what we say? In reply, he was treated with three further bangs. He followed it up by asking how many people were in the room, but was only answered with silence. Once more he tried, stating that it should knock once for each person in the room. This time, five loud knocks echoed off the walls, accounting for all five people in the room. As exciting as this development was, it was fairly short-lived, as nothing further was recorded that night, nor the next when the doctor returned. Once more, things continued for several more weeks, only by now the secret was slowly creeping out. Quiet whispers had turned to open gossip and speculation had started to become pricked through with small facts that were creeping out of the Teed household. It was not long before the newspapers had caught wind of the story and naturally they flew in feet first, pronouncing the house to be harbouring nothing less than the Amherst mystery as spirits from the vasty deep puzzled the local scientists. The Montreal Star had sent a special reporter to Amherst to investigate the rumours coming from the Teed House, and his story managed to fill a full-length column, second only in impact, to an advert for Messrs McGibbon and Baird's table sauce, the best relish in the world. The piece interviewed several locals, most of whom were perfectly happy to ascribe the events around Esther to a supernatural or demonic origin. Perhaps the most level-headed of all was Reverend Temple, the Wesleyan minister in charge of Esther's church, who, despite witnessing the bucket of drinking water on the kitchen table boil on its own accord, believed it more likely to have been a symptom of natural causes, which couldn't be explained by current science, but would someday be accounted for. Somewhat less grounded was the opinion of one Mr Pride, the manager of the Amherst Boot and Shoe Factory. He told the paper of how he had confronted Bob McNeil about his conduct once the story had gotten out about his attack on Esther in front of the rest of the factory workers. Bob had admitted his guilt and subsequently been let go from his job and was reportedly lying low somewhere on the outskirts of the town. Mr Pride, however, was sure that Bob had had previous dealing in mesmerism and suggested openly that he was most likely the cause of the Amherst mystery, despite being illiterate. No matter the extremity of the opinion, however, all witnesses, and there were quite a few, were all willing to sign off on their statements, on official documents if necessary. If the Teeds thought they had a problem before now, the newspaper pieces on the Amherst mystery brought a whole new set of difficulties their way in the form of overnight fame. The street outside their house became crowded day after day as people flocked from across Canada and North America to see Esther for themselves 
and to hear the strange bangs. The house was regularly full at all hours, and on more than one occasion, the police were called in in order to keep the peace, as tempers frayed outside from those unable to muscle their way into the small cottage. Perhaps something of a blessing, Esther fell ill to diphtheria and spent two weeks in bed, at which time the strange happenings slipped away, tempering the crowds to a degree, and after she recovered, she left Amherst for the further two weeks to stay with family in Sackville. All throughout, the tea house stood silent the entire time. When she returned, however, things would kick off like nothing before. After a period of calm, Esther's return to the house signalled to the Teeds and the by now numerous watchers that whatever was happening was almost certainly centred around Esther herself. Within days of her returning, events kicked up again, with the same loud erratic bangs happening throughout the day and night much to the glee of the renewed crowds. Some of the more investigative visitors had come up with a form of communication. Three knocks for yes, one for no, and were frequently asking questions out loud, from questions about the invisible entity itself to random future divinations. Meanwhile, Esther had begun hearing voices in her head, voices of spirits who she said had told her that they had once lived on Earth, though it had been many years ago. More frighteningly, the spirits told her that they aimed to burn down the house, as soon as Esther told Jane about this, Jane called in Daniel and Olive and warned them of what Esther had said that she had heard. Daniel, who had been told by one of the visitors that Esther's condition had been due to excess electricity, said that there was no concern with fire, as electricity couldn't possibly cause a fire, and that they should not worry. However, his shrugs were given pause when matches began falling from the air, fully lit. Over the next 10 minutes, the family frantically put out matches all around the room that appeared to be appearing from thin air. Daniel asked out loud if the house was going to be set on fire and was answered with three ominous knocks. Somewhat more ruffled than he had been, he retired to bed for an uneasy sleep. The next three days passed with the family on eggshells until their fears were confirmed when a fire erupted in the cellar whilst all members of the family were accounted for in the kitchen and dining room. Olive dashed down to put the fire out with the trusty bucket of drinking water from the kitchen table, but upon realising that an entire barrel of wood shavings had been set alight, she realised it was not anywhere near enough to quench the flames. Running out into the street, she screamed for help and was answered by a complete stranger, whose quick thinking saw him run into the house, pull up the dining room rug and use it to suffocate the flames. The fire was serious business, and what had been a fun interest story had suddenly cast a darker shadow across Amherst as people felt concern for their own properties. If the Teed's house was caught alight in the right conditions, the fire could easily spread throughout Princess Street. On one side, the Teeds were still receiving visitors daily, all happy to ask the spirits questions such as, how many keys do I have in my pocket? After which they would wait for the correct number of bangs to sound. But there were also now those that spoke out against the Amherst mystery. Daniel Teed seemed to fall somewhere in between the two, harbouring his own fears for his house and his family. Throughout January, matches continued to spawn from thin air until Daniel Teed took the decision to move Esther from the house altogether, according to one source, prompted by an apparition of a ghost. Look there, look there. My God, it is the ghost. Don't you all see him? There he stands, all in grey. See how his eyes are glaring at me, and he laughs when he says I must leave the house tonight or he will start a fire in the loft under the roof and burn us all to death. Oh, what shall I do? Where shall I go? The ground is covered with snow, and yet I cannot remain here, for he will do what he threatens. He always does. Esther described the apparition as 
a very rough and brutal-looking ghost, apparently about 60 years of age, wearing a scraggy grey beard and dressed like any common-looking dirty tramp. Fortunately, one of the more interested parties in the Amherst mystery was a family friend with a penchant for bravery and a spare room, Mr John White and his wife, who were the owners of a local saloon. For the first two weeks that Esther stayed with the Whites, things seemed to quiet down and the situation at the Teeds got noticeably calmer. Mr White, who did not trust Esther at home alone during the day, gave her a position working in the kitchen of his saloon, where Esther quickly became something of a draw, performing tricks for customers, guessing simple questions like how much money they had in their pockets, the dates of coins in their hands and answering basic questions about the patrons, all provided, supposedly, by the spirits that followed Esther around. For a while, business boomed and Mr White was perfectly happy with the situation. But eventually, the spirit's pyromaniac tendencies reared their heads once more when small fires began erupting throughout his house. What began with fun parlour tricks in the saloon had taken a bit of a turn also when Esther's spirits, who had been moving things around the saloon for some time, including reorganising the furniture and removing a solid steel oven door from its hinges, took a knife from a young boy named Little Fred and stabbed Esther in the back. It eventually became too risky for Mr White, who tossed in the towel in March and moved Esther on to another willing party. For three weeks, she went to stay with Captain James Beck in a town in New Brunswick, where she was placed under pretty intense scrutiny from a group of interested doctors and spiritualists. During questioning via sessions of table tipping, she communicated to the group that she was being haunted by three separate ghosts. The first, Bob Nicol, was the spirit obsessed with burning things to the ground whilst the other two, Peter Cox, a dead relation, and Maggie Fisher, were more benevolent and at times actively trying to stop Bob Nichols' mischief. After her stay in New Brunswick, she went to stay on a farm on the outskirts of Amherst with a Mr and Mrs Van Amberg, during which time everything seemed to fall to a fragile peace. After her brief respite, Esther returned to Amherst and the Teed House whilst working in Mr White's saloon during the day, where she continued to perform for the clientele, including a new trick that she had picked up whilst in New Brunswick of automatic writing. The spirits, especially that of Bob Nicol, were happy to scribble pages of scrawled profanity, much to the embarrassment of Esther and the enjoyment of the onlookers. Things continued this way for a few more months, until the summer of 1879, when Amherst was visited by an actor with a penchant for the supernormal, who was keen to shine a critical light on the Amherst mystery, or at least, keen to make some money from the affair. Born in 1851, Walter Hubble was a New York-based Shakespearean actor at the head of a reasonably well-respected theatre troupe. Relatively eccentric and the black sheep of his lawyer-driven family, one review of his production of Hamlet in Long Island described him as a lean man weighing perhaps £120 without an ounce of superfluous flesh with cords standing out on his wrists and neck, protuberant wrist bones and knuckles, long hair brushed straight over back, and an air of deadly earnestness about him, to which no caricaturist could do justice. Throughout the winter of 1878-79, he'd been touring Canada with a drama company when he came across the stories of the Amherst mystery in the newspapers. Fairly sceptical to begin with, in 1872, he had researched spiritualism fairly heavily, in efforts to prove to his friend who he believed was being taken by a ride by a spiritualist group after she had suffered a loss in her family. The conclusions he had drawn had not convinced him to believe anything other than what he suspected all along, and he presented his argument to his friend, successfully steering her away from the group of charlatans. Despite this scepticism, however, 
Hubble still found interest in the area of the supernormal, and when he came across the story of Esther Cox, he found himself sucked in. At the very least, he knew enough about show business to know that Esther would draw a crowd, and where there was a crowd, there was money to be made. He contacted John White, the saloon owner, and proposed taking Esther on a tour as a simple-hearted village maiden followed by a ghost from Nova Scotia. White wrote back to Hubble, suggesting that he come visit Amherst and meet Esther for himself, preferably before she was consumed by the devil or Amherst was burned to the ground. With that dramatic statement casually tossed out there, Hubble wrote back, telling him that he would be in Amherst by June and until then he should guard Esther, weapons at the ready and a bucket of water nearby. True to his word, Hubble made it to Amherst on Wednesday the 11th of June 1879, stopping for dinner at White's saloon the owner then took him straight over to meet Esther at the Teeds' house, where she was now staying during the evenings. His first impression of Esther was fairly tempered. Convinced that it was all a fraud of some kind, he listened to White and Esther talk up the strange happenings and told them of how he would be happy to write and present a lecture, giving the history of the case, deciding it probably best to keep his sceptical side to himself for now, despite his other main goal being the unmasking of the fraud to his own benefit. In the evening... He returned, and having seen the stories in the papers, commended a series of tests that mirrored those that he had previously read about. I asked the number of my watch, and it was correctly knocked, figure by figure, commencing at the left or first figure. I asked the time by the dining room clock, and it was knocked in the same manner, being 12 minutes of 10pm. The power then beat correct time whilst I whistled Yankee Doodle. I asked the date of a coin in my pocket, and it was knocked correctly, being 1876. All the knocks were upon the table and nowhere else during the evening, and we did not put our hands upon the table, nor sing nearer my God to thee. I watched all the persons present. I saw their hands and feet by the light of the coal oil lamp in the room, and no one present knew the number of my watch, nor date of the coin in my pocket, not even myself. This was my first experience with the remarkable power known as the Great Amherst Mystery. Apparently, it hadn't taken too long for Hubble to change his mind dramatically. That night, he lay awake in his hotel room, smoking his pipe and going over all that he had just witnessed. The following day, Hubble, White and Esther hit the road for their grand tour across North America. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite that straightforward and they were immediately met with opposition. Not everyone in Canada was so ready to believe as they had hoped and their first few nights were filled with jeering crowds, derision and disapproval. The editorial in one newspaper called Esther a subject for exhibition to mystify the unwary, whilst others pulled even less punches. The only mystery is that so many persons who should know better are deceived. The newspapers are greatly to blame for working up this pitiable sensation. The story is now going the rounds that the girl, Esther Cox, is to be taken around on exhibition. In the name of humanity, propriety, religion and decency, we earnestly protest against a proceeding so base and disgusting. If the girl is sick, why should her infirmities be exhibited to the public? If, on the other hand, there is nothing to exhibit but very clumsy tricks of legerdemain, the exhibitors would at least appear before the public in a role not worthy of persons of character. After just nine days, the tour was cut short and the trio returned to Amherst, tail between their legs. For Hubble, it had been a pretty big letdown, but for Esther, it had been a truly harrowing experience and the trauma had been painfully real. White thought it best to alleviate Esther of her position in the saloon and Hubble arranged to board in Amherst for the summer in order to better investigate the Amherst mystery 
of which he was now convinced was entirely real. During his time in the house, he witnessed all manner of phenomena, including items of furniture and personal effects being tossed around by an invisible force, the loud thunder-like bangs, the seemingly intelligent table knocking, and he endured a whole host of kitchen knives being thrown at him. Esther apparently had told him that Bob Nickel didn't actually like him. None of it seemed to face Hubble, though, who only wanted to dig deeper into the spirits that were haunting Esther. There were now three new ghosts that surrounded her. The original three, Bob Nicholl, who was the chief ghost, Peter Cox and Maggie Fisher, were joined by Mary Fisher, Maggie's sister, Jane Nicholl, who was either the wife or sister of Bob, and Eliza McNeil, the sister of her abusive ex-boyfriend, Bob McNeil. Maggie dressed in a greyish violet dress and had a habit of swinging by her arms from the trapdoor to the attic whilst Jane and Eliza seemed to be like many young women of Nova Scotia and dressed like those who worked in kitchens. Hoping to get to the bottom of their origin and existence, Hubble asked them a series of questions and recorded their replies. Have you all lived on Earth? Yes. Have you seen God? No. Are you in Heaven? No. Are you in Hell? Yes. Have you seen the Devil? Yes. The interview was cut short after one of the ghosts tossed his ink bottle on the floor. Part of his diary from that period was later published in the Western Chronicle that further documented some of the strange happenings that Hubble was now reportedly experiencing daily. June the 25th, I have been pulling pins out of Esther all day, which the invisible power has been sticking into all parts of her person. I have seen the pins come out of the air and stick into the girl. They have also been put into her ears. I pulled about 30 pins out of her today. It is becoming more wonderful and more accountable. A chair was taken out of my bedroom and thrown downstairs after Esther Cox, no person being in the upper part of the house at the time. As we were entering the parlour this afternoon, both saw a chair fall over and jump up again and were both five feet from it at the time. Hubble left the house in July, thoroughly convinced that everything he had seen had been genuine supernormal phenomena. It was, perhaps, a shade too early to leave, however, as shortly after, things in the Teed household kicked off with a new level of severity. Once again, matches had started falling from thin air, threatening to burn the house down, and it was only after the Teed's landlord stepped in and threatened to kick the family out that she was moved, again, to stay with the Van Ambergs. Her stay on their rural farm had had a calming effect on Esther last time, and Daniel Teed hoped that it would once more calm things down, whilst also satisfying his landlord and keeping a roof above his family's head. Things did seem to calm down, at least for a time, and only in the Teed household. As they had hoped, the Van Amberg farm had had a calming effect on Esther, and things gradually faded out of the public eye. Esther recovered well, and was eventually able to move out of the Van Ambergs and take the position of a living farmhand on the Davison farm in Amherst. While she was there, it does seem that some manifestations of the spirits appeared from time to time. A knife was thrown at Davison's head, and various objects were reported by Mr and Mrs Davison as flying around. They gradually dwindled, however, until October, when they were struck back with a vengeance. Bob Nicholl, ever the arsonist, had finally got his wishes, and he had set fire to one of Davison's barns, burning the building to the ground. Earlier that day, Esther, under the influence of the spirits, she said, had stolen some clothing from Davison's washing line, only to return them later that evening. At the same time, she found the urge, apparently provoked by Bob, to enter the Davison barn and set it ablaze. Esther was arrested on charges of arson, and though she pleaded not guilty, was sentenced to four months in jail. 
the public gathered together and mounted an appeal, which saw Esther released a month later, in December of 1879, at which time she returned to the Van Ambergs and was rarely heard from again. Occasionally, when strange happenings were reported in Canada, a sly reference here or there would be made to the Amherst mystery, in the hopes that they would progress into another excitement. But none ever quite caught the public's attention, like Esther had in 1878. Walter Hubble published his book on the investigation in 1879 titled The Great Amherst Mystery. It was a bestseller that sold over 55,000 copies across more than 10 editions. Whether or not he truly ever believed in the phenomena or was just looking to salvage any cash he could from his trip after the tour had gone awry is anyone's guess. But it is true that later in life he did lean towards spiritualism and even associated with several spiritualist type groups. Esther in relative anonymity, went on to marry twice, having a son with each husband. There is a vague reference to her visit to a Native American witch doctor some time after Hubble left that supposedly settled the spirits within her, though no evidence or detail exists of any such thing. In later years, she changed her name and refused to discuss the case, stating that she was afraid that by doing so, the spirits may find a way to return. She eventually settled in Brockton, Massachusetts, where she died in 1912, aged 52. So what exactly was going on in Amherst during those chaotic two years of Esther's life? For years after, the locals would remain split in their beliefs of what had occurred at the Teed House. Some thought Esther a straight-up fraud with arsonistic tendencies, whilst others were split still again in believing that Esther was either genuinely stalked by some ghostly phenomena or some other form of supernatural happening that was more down-to-earth, just beyond the current science. Vague suggestions of electromagnetism becoming unhinged, or an invisible vapour distorting the visions of the witnesses, are just two of the somewhat surreal contemporary theories that were more a reflection of the general awe for the scientific world of the time than of anything based in the modern reality. There are many more theories on the origins of the spirits, from demonic possession to poltergeist. Walter Hubble's theory was always hazy at best, but he suggested that, from the outset, Bob McNeil had been possessed by the demon ghost of Bob Nickel, leading him to threaten to kill Esther out during the buggy ride. The ghost had then somehow jumped from Bob and into Esther, where he was able to carry out his devilish deeds. How this might have happened is given very little explanation, other than Esther's fright at the time, potentially opening her up to possession. On the sceptical side, right from the time of the events through today, the idea that Esther was a simple fraud, the acting out of a frustrated young girl, stuck in a relatively boring life in a cramped household, has been put forward by countless people. One of the hardest questions to answer if this were the case, however, is for what reason would Esther have taken it so far? She seemed to have little, if anything, to gain at all from the propagating the stories, and even more to lose for carrying out the attempts at lighting fires in her house. There is, of course, the obvious possibility that the evidence was jazzed up to create more excitement on the case, a suggestion that would be hard to argue when one considers the sources, all of which came from writers with newspapers and books to sell. Olive Teed herself told the British psychical investigator and author Hillwood Carrington during an interview in 1907 that Walter Hubble had dramatised and embellished some of his accounts, though she was adamant that just as many were entirely true. Dr. Carrot also maintained that everything he saw and wrote of was true, and until his death, he called the apparent miracles that he had witnessed a puzzle that he could never explain. It is also true that Hubble, who entered into the case as sceptic, 
became increasingly interested in spiritualism after the events and seemed to be something of a convert. One element that supports the idea that the whole thing was greatly embellished is the fact that despite there being so many witnesses, and if the newspapers and Hubble were to be believed, they numbered in their hundreds, then why were so few actually heard from? In all of the reports, it's only a small handful of people that actually give any kind of testimony as as to what they had seen. Half the town that could still remember the affair as it happened remained sceptical. There are also theories that relate to Esther's psychological welfare at the time that tend to coexist with the idea that the Amherst mystery was heavily sensationalised. Those that suggest a psychological explanation point to the fright that Esther had experienced during the buggy ride with Bob McNeil and the fact that the hauntings started just a week later Arthur Esther had suppressed their emotions. When looking at the supposed ghosts, all had direct links to Esther's situation and experience in life. Bob Nicholl was a shoemaker, just like Daniel Teed and William Cox, two men that she lived with. Many of them were relatives of her extended family, and it's hard to overlook the similarity between the names of Bob Nicholl, the evil spirit, and Bob McNeil, the man who had attempted to assault her. Ultimately, with accounts as old as these, we are left with little choice but to assess the source and decide for ourselves where our beliefs lie. The sources for the Amherst mystery are, sadly, questionable at best a handful of newspaper reports and a book written by an actor with a flair for dramatics and one eye on a money-making scheme are a challenge for even the hardest believer to square away. That something happened, however, is just as true and it seems that at the very least, Esther Cox was the likely victim of assault and psychological trauma with a story that remains worth telling without casual dismissal. So that was Esther Cox and the Amherst Mystery. Quite a story, quite quite a big one. So I will talk a little bit about my thoughts um, after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So, yeah, quite a story. Um, a really good story and I really enjoyed it. And I'm really glad I, 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 I it was brought to my attention and uh, I was able to, to cover it because it, I can't believe it sort of got away from me until now. But um, it's, it's really nice to you know do a story especially being in Canada as well that's you know I, I don't think I've done much in Canada so that's good but anyway what do I think um so I, I looked into it quite obviously quite deeply and spent quite a lot of time in like the old newspapers and things and, and I have like a lot of problems actually but I mean my main problem is just the fact that the sources are awful and and of course whenever I do dark histories I have to assess the sources right and and it's up to me to give each source the correct amount of weight in terms of how much I believe it, right? And in this case, all of the sources are awful. <laughs> like, like, they're literally the worst sources that you could ask for. They're sort of like uh, sensationalist newspaper pieces that are, are very sensationalist. The, in just the way they're written is, you know, their headlines are... Uh, you can tell from old newspapers that are interesting in that. Often the sensational stuff wasn't written so differently from the normal stuff. Everything was written in this quite unique style. But you can tell the pieces that are like meant to be sensationalist. This sounds kind of obvious, but you can tell by the headlines. Um, and in this case, all of the headlines were, were kind of... Um, they had these like sub-headlines that were quite long. They would go on for like four or five lines. And um, the sensational ones always kind of like utilise certain words and certain phrases and certain um, people. Like they, it would be like 
the Amherst mystery continues to puzzle scientists. And you just know that that's a sensationalist piece that right there, right? Because they're talking about scientists in the 19th century. Whenever you read the newspapers from the 19th century and they mention scientists, it almost always is trying to ham, you know, you've got to think of scientists almost as like wizards. Do you know what? Like, it, it, it's, it, that's almost the, the context that they're using it in. Um, and, and, and so you always know whenever they, they say something like that, you, you're going to be reading a sensationalist story. So straight off the bat, that that's like the the vast majority of the sources, and then the only other real source you have is, is Water Humble's book, which is awful as a source because the first half of the book he literally wasn't even there. So it's his sort of write up of um, the story he got from the family, which you know it's already moving away, you know, like from from the primary, but. But it's okay, you know. You can. I'm not saying that that that, can, that doesn't always have to be a terrible source, but come on, how much do we trust Walter Hubble? Because I, I I don't trust him as far as I can kick him. He wrote a series of letters. I, I read his letters to um, Mr. White, who had the saloon, and um, the, the the two were basically like had no care for Esther whatsoever. That like like. I mean, Mr. White could barely write it. It was quite amusing. He's quite a lit- not not illiterate because he could obviously write letters, but barely right um and uh and they were writing to each other about these um said like planning the tour and um yeah it's quite clear that they had one thing on their mind and that was just making money and they didn't really care about esther you know um uh mr white was talking about how um other parties are interested in esther and he and uh um hubble better hurry up uh you know and get there soon because otherwise it was all gonna you know he wasn't sure how much he could hold how much longer he could hold on to her despite the fact that Esther was you know, not keen to go with these other parties, which was, you know, a good thing for them, I guess. But the way he writes about her, you can see that she's kind of like this kind of piece of meat that, you know, like it's it's kind of gross. Um, so you, you, anyway, the point is you, you can see in these letters that their, their main thought was money. Um, and, and so I sort of feel like that, um, you know, Hubble probably always had a, a book in mind, but the book, became more of a problem when the tour failed right so that then now he has to like really ham this book up to to make some money out of this thing and so so i think that's exactly what i did i think it's you know um olive later say in she she, she had a interview in 1907 and she said that he greatly embellished a lot of the stories but she also said that he um like there were stories that he hadn't actually included in the book that she then told and that they were almost worse. I mean, one of them was like a chair that kind of slid up the wall and stuff. So although she says that a lot of the stories were embellished, she says a lot more, you know, equally as many were true and and and, and some he hadn't even included. Like, I do believe something was happening and I do believe something pretty crazy was happening. But I, I, I do also believe that it was massively embellished and that probably a lot of it was like answerable. So I, I I always say on this show that I don't really want to like armchair diagnose people with with like mental health problems because I, I just I'm not qualified to do so and I find it really distasteful when people do that. But one thing I did find really really interesting um, was Esther was talking about feeling like electricity sparking all around her body, and and that like to me as like someone who suffered from anxiety like pretty much my whole life it was um you know straight away like I was like oh well that sounds like anxiety to me you know like a lot of the symptoms that she was describing sounded like these kind of wacky 19th century explanations for anxiety. She was saying that she was like burning up with a fever and felt like she was going to explode and that she was swelling up and she was concerned that she was going to die. 
and you know that she had electricity sparking all around her body and 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 in my mind i'm just thinking yeah this is all like symptoms of a panic attack right like like she's just like she's more or less just seems to me like describing a panic attack in but using like 19th century language and and not even that far off descriptions that i've heard in, from this century so yeah i i thought that was really interesting and it, and it, it did to me it does to me lead me to kind of go along with that that the theories that there was probably something like very unfortunately unwell with Esther due to the the kind of shock like maybe some sort of PTSD or some sort of shock or I don't I don't know like I said I don't I'm not really qualified to know this stuff but I, I do think it was probably something like that um, and then however that presented itself was then sort of embellished and turned into this like great Amherst mystery and, and that I think is the answer and I think it's quite quite a clear answer I think I think. I think until we're not going to get better sources, but I think without the better sources, I think that's the only conclusion that you can really come to that isn't um, utter nonsense, basically, because ultimately the sources are are quite bad. Um, And to just believe them, um, like like at face value, is is well, yeah, you just can't. the, the the only thing I will say is is that the psych the American Society for the the American Society for Psychical Research uh, did do a, a paper on it and actually um, that paper is really outdated now it shows its age really badly because obviously he went in with this like real skeptical hammer on it but uh, unfortunately like he makes a lot of mistakes and and it's down to the fact that um, he wasn't aware of the newspapers at the time um, in when he did that. Um, paper and it's really apparent when when you read his paper on it that he he was missing a massive part of the picture which we have now through newspaper archives which i guess weren't available to him at the time and i would say that a lot of skeptics on this case they get a lot of their information from his paper and unfortunately his paper is really not very good and, and I, it's, it's not to me no better than hubble's book they're they're, they're both just as bad as each other it's just that his is, you know, on the sceptical side and Hubble's is obviously on the believer side. So really, when you look at it, nothing in this case has good sources for either side of the argument, really. Um, and, and all we're left to do is sort of look at, the, you know, what's written and, and try and read between the lines, which is what I think I tried to do with my conclusion, which is, you know, I think that she was probably, you know, suffering from um, some sort of trauma from, from the night with Bob McNeil, who, you know, the guy basically you know, she was in love with and she, or, you know, it was her sweet childhood sweetheart or whatever. And he takes her out. She obviously trusts him. You know, he takes her out into the wilderness and essentially threatens to rape her at a gunpoint. Um, and, you, you know, that's traumatic for anyone. And that's if he didn't do anything. And because often in the 19th century um, and, and earlier texts, um, there were allude to something of, uh, um, you know, uh, um, something like a sexual assault, and and that, but they won't actually say it happened. They'll say, oh, you know, it, it, he threatened it or whatever, even though it might actually have happened. It's and that, and they did it um, to sort of protect the victim, if you like. Um, but you know, all we know is that she came home soaking wet, scared out of her mind, and, and went straight to bed. So who knows? Um, either way, I think she probably suffered quite a bit of trauma from that, and then she's kind of suppressing that, and it's. That's that's what I think anyway. That that's my theory, and I, I think it's I think it's fairly logical theory, and I think it's a fairly 
obvious theory to come to, but but I, it's still a really interesting story. And I, and I, and interestingly, although that theory is you know quite down to earth, I don't think it makes the story any less important or, or interesting. Like the story is still obviously really interesting, like the way it all manifested itself and the idea of like sensationalizing these things and showing how they were sensationalized in the nineteenth century. But also, I think it's kind of a to to just kind of like wave the story aside and say oh that's just rubbish you know that wasn't ghosts or whatever i think it's slightly sort of disrespectful to esther's side of the story which obviously was you know very difficult to deal with and, and quite traumatizing so i think it's a i still think it's a really good story and i'm really glad to have covered it um so anyway that that's my take on it um if you have different opinion let me know always happy to hear or you know if, or, or any opinion uh, you can get in touch with me. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email address, or you can do so via social media. If you go on um, darkhistories.com, which is the, the, the kind of main website for Dark Histories, you will find links to just about everything. And you can also find them in the show notes as well. Uh, you'll also find links to the Discord server, um, the merch store, and uh, the patron if you'd like to support. Um, very thankful to everyone who supports. Um, and, you know, if you'd like to, that would be wonderful um but no worries if not um otherwise that's about that for this week thanks very much for listening until next time take care i'll see you real soon sleep tight <laughs>